Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, the Premier League is back. Sam Allardyce gives West Brom a fighting chance with a first win at Stamford Bridge for 43 years. There was more bite about the Magpies. Can Newcastle United resurrect their reputation along with their managers? We'll look ahead to the Champions League quarterfinals with some incredible ties on the way, including Real Madrid versus Liverpool. And we'll jump into the most passionate press conferences ever. This all coming on today's episode of The Game Podcast. To help me through it all, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Nice to hear from you. Hope everyone had a happy Easter as well. Um, the Premier League was back. Lots of people missed it over the international break, but there were some lackluster performances in there. Certain teams anyway this weekend. It got me thinking about how the international break can really affect a side because it felt like it killed some teams' momentum, but it was also a welcome break for others. Uh, what did you think, Tom? Well, Southampton clearly enjoyed it. I think Ralph Hasenhutl looked like a man who'd had a bit of time to think about things. They'd been on a pretty poor run in the Premier League before the uh, comeback win against Burnley, which was a fantastic game. I thoroughly enjoyed it. James Ward-Prowse, as I mentioned before, continues to impress. Um, and Burnley keep proving they're the great entertainers in the Premier League. You want to watch, want to watch an entertaining game and, be, and enjoy your football? Watch a Burnley match. Um, some excellent goals. But I thought Southampton looked like a team that had benefited from the break a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Do you think, Gregor, the, the biggest teams were most disrupted by the international break? Obviously, a huge amount of their players uh, go off travelling around the world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's understandable when it's even the kind of mental fatigue of that uh, that amount of travelling and and you know another few games in the in the calendar. Um, but I suppose if you look at Liverpool, their kind of Brazilian contingent stayed put. So you know, Trent Alexander Arnold had a had a rest, um, and and they were they were outstanding. So you know, Chelsea on the other hand had to rest a few, and and they looked poor. But I I don't know. I'm I, I'm not got that much sympathy personally because they all have have squads big enough to cope with it. And uh, so yeah, not much sympathy here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just in, I was just intrigued, and I guess you did answer the question about how it might affect. Um, aside, it never hurt Liverpool 
as uh, Gregor points out, Alison, this weekend. We're going to look ahead to their game against Real Madrid in the Champions League a little bit later, as well as Manchester City against Dortmund and Chelsea's trip to Porto. Um, Chelsea prepared for their game against Porto in the worst possible way, really. Maybe they were, as you mentioned, Gregor, the most affected by the international break. They were beaten 5-2 at home by relegation-threatened West Bromwich Albion. It's Albion's first win at Stamford Bridge since 1978. West Brom... Eight points from safety. Their manager, Sam Allardyce, said after the match, Albion need five wins from the last eight games to give them a chance. Um, to me, he almost kills their hopes by saying they need to win that many games. You know, why not just say we're taking it a game at a time, Alison? Uh, because he was very in a very happy place, wasn't he, Hugh? So he's not... <laughs> if there's a manager who's going to milk as much as possible from a surprise result, it's Sam Allardyce. Um, this has solved all the puzzles of the universe, this result. Um, and in fact, he deserves some credit, doesn't he? Because I think the way Chelsea set up, they were inviting a new form of West Brom to the party, one that could be a bit more adventurous with that back line. I mean, Thiago Silva, he hasn't been in the team for a long time. He is getting on a bit. And it would had a very much... the. Um, you know, it had a tang of waiting for Porto about it. You know, vintage Porto on, uh, on on Wednesday. That's what it said. And so he, I think, I think if you're facing a team uh, with that back line, um, you say to your players, you know, we're, we're younger, we're fitter than a lot of them. Uh, you know, we've got something to play for for today, not, not, not midweek. Go for it. Chase, chase down look adventurous don't sit back and that's exactly what they did and it you know you i mean obviously i've got hindsight because um we know that tiago silva couldn't cope and he ended up getting sent off and just having his timing slightly awry but that that was that was just the most beautiful invitation for a team that almost at the point where they've got nothing to lose you see that every season really don't you that a team dips so far off the running that you think they're going to be quite hard to play against because they've got to the point of no return. But now suddenly, with just one result, there's that sort of shred, little rainbow of hope for, for West Brom. It's simply because Chelsea said, why don't you have a go? And they did. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point Alison raises. And it kind of, it links back to your question, Hugh, about pressure. And I wonder whether Allardyce has slightly put the pressure back on to his team. Because when I've watched them recently, it seems to be related to pressure, their performance. They, they were excellent against uh, Burnley when they went down to 10 men against Burnley. They were fantastic, West Brom. And then they were brilliant against Chelsea, a team that are in form no one expects them to be. And yet that same kind of verve and enthusiasm and pace and little flicks and tricks and people score. They, the goals were fantastic, weren't they? There were some excellent, excellent goals. But none of that was there in the game against Newcastle just before the international break. The one that was the, the six-pointer, the one they need to win. None of that was there. And so... It is strange. Alison makes a good point, I think, about the pressure being off. And now maybe with, you know, they've got some difficult games, maybe that'll almost help them play better. I mean, you had Pereira proving why I stuck so, so solidly and, you know, resolutely behind him in my fantasy football team for months on end, <laughs> only to see him do absolutely nothing, finally showing what he could do. Callum Robinson. I mean, they were brilliant goals, weren't they? Such confidence. Connor Townsend as well. Mm. Yeah, they were, they were. Little fl- his little flick you know when yeah. he was running through to have the composure at that moment when Mason Mount was chasing back to the little, little back heel Conor Townsend 
is the one time in my entire career I would not have put myself on the team sheet. He came alone to Grimsby Town when uh, <laughs> when he was a young lad from Hull City and he was outstanding. He was like, he came for the first half of the season we were in the conference it was like my last season in professional football my legs were going I had a dodgy <laughs> knee that was getting injections and stuff Conor Townsend came in and he was unbelievable and I remember one game when he like, got three assists and just thinking you know if, if I was picking the team I wouldn't play myself and it was the first time <laughs> I ever had that kind of revelation I thought this doesn't feel good <laughs> but I'm, he's, been, he's been brilliant he's been brilliant under Allardyce particularly Um and yeah, some of the goals, sweeping moves, you know. I thought, yeah, brilliant they were. They've got Leicester, Aston Villa, Arsenal, Liverpool, West Ham and Leeds, amongst others, in terms of their running as well. I mean, it, it, that, that is pressure, Tom. Uh, that is yeah. pressure, exactly, if, if you need it to perform coming up. Um, but it was an incredible performance from his, his side. But as you mentioned, Thiago Silva sent off early on and Chelsea just imploded. I mean... <laughs> That is so different to what we've seen with their, their sort of calmness, composure under Thomas Tuchel. It hasn't really mattered who's played at the back. They've always seemed to have an element of control. I mean, it just went out the window and, and probably that match alone made me wonder how the international break had affected them. Yeah, I think, I wonder whether there's a bit of a Frank Lampard hangover here because Lampard's Chelsea always had this in them, didn't they? That was one of our criticisms of them. They weren't reliable. And one of the great things that we've been praising Tuchel for is that he's made Chelsea a bit more reliable. But you can't, you don't just switch that off. I think there's, there was an element of this was the remnants of the Frank Lampard era coming to the surface, perhaps after the international break. I don't actually think it's a terrible thing for Chelsea and for Tuchel to have had this result with a big game coming up in a way. Because, you know, I wonder whether it'll make him, you know, sort them out a little bit, get it out of the system before before the real party happens. Tom, that's so funny. You've made me think now that every international break, the empty corridors of football training grounds are haunted by previous managers. What a thought, hey? Spectres float <laughs> through the corridors going, ooh, remember me, remember me. Yeah, what a thought. Don't music. defend. Don't defend. <laughs> Don't worry about defending. Just have fun. Attack. Play the kids. It's all right. We'll talk a little bit more about Chelsea ahead of their game against Porto in the Champions League in our next section of the show. But another team towards the bottom of the table who had a, 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 well, an important result, let's call it that, this weekend is Newcastle United. They fought back to earn a point at home to Spurs. They're now three points clear of Fulham in the drop zone. But it was their approach that I think might lead to a more positive end of the season. They had 22 shots in the game. Steve Bruce, their manager, said his team had an edge and energy. He said it's time they showed what they were about. Um, Gregor, if Newcastle keep playing like this, do you think they will definitely survive? Yeah, but it's the chances of them keeping playing like this that's their biggest worry, I think. Um... Yeah, there were some really good performances. That's what the that's what they could take from this. Joe Ellington was kind of he made a real nuisance of himself, which he he often does not. And he's still very you know. I think there was a chance chance earlier in the first half when he drove inside and hit with his left foot, and it it looked like I don't know an under twelve striking it with his left foot. He's still he there is mind boggling his performances. I think sometimes for Newcastle, but he's a big presence and he did make you know he, he backed into players he held it up and he brought people into play and he worked very hard so you know the, that was encouraging but as I say I just think Newcastle have, have done this before they've had 
you know, they've shown kind of positive performances and then slipped back into into kind of really lethargic displays. Um, but you know, the, the pressure's on now. They really are. It, although it's in their heart, their hands, it's going to be very tight running. So um, certainly, certainly a lot of positive signs for them in this game. And as you say, the chance creation, was, which is the big thing. You know, I think the expected goals it was like four point two or something to Tottenham about two. So, so it wasn't like, you know, they weren't they weren't fortunate to get a point here. Uh, they had the best chances, and that's that's been you know very rare for them this season. Maybe what we're learning is that after an international break, the struggling teams, if they are more aggressive and do get players in the box and do try and flood forward, that's the point at which you're more likely to get points. At, against a team that's, you know, supposed to be a top six, going for top four sort of team, because you're getting them when they're at their least defensively well-organised. Just, you, you know, a whole host of things happen in the international break, don't they? Some players get tired, you, you lose the rhythm of training. You're more machine-like if you're one of the big teams. So maybe you should add, maybe the next international break, you should everyone should analyse what happened because I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but both West Brom and Newcastle, teams very clearly in trouble, decided to play like teams that were not in trouble against teams that have big ambition. I don't think that can be a coincidence. They went for it. They absolutely did, Newcastle United. They've got West Ham, Liverpool, Arsenal, Leicester and Manchester City included in their run-in, so they will have to do this uh, a few more times if they're to survive. It was a positive shift, though, for them. And there is a chance, if they do continue to play like this, which is the big question mark, Tom, that the reputation of both the club and the manager, Steve Bruce, could be resurrected over the coming, what, eight or nine games? I think that's a stretch. I'm sure there'll be a lot of Newcastle fans <laughs> listening to this going, here they are, classic journalists, not been watching us all season. One decent performance. There's Gregor praising Joe Linton just because he scored one half-decent goal and headed the ball a few times. <laughs> Bloody typical. That's more than he's normally done. That's all. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but 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 I I take your point. There was a there was an there could be an element of revival. I think there's Newcastle is so steeped in not quite misery yet, but it's heading that way. That I think even if they survive and even if these performances continue, there will still be a lot of rightly unhappy supporters but it's interesting you listed those fixtures before and it's the Burnley factor again they've got Burnley next and that's in relation to what I was saying before with West Brom it's and that and that Alison and your points about pressure they've now put in a good performance shown they can attack shown they can create chances they now go to to play Burnley and everyone goes well that's a winnable game that's the winnable game and do they freeze that's the question and I think to your point about the mood, that will be the defining factor, the Burnley performance. Because Burnley are everyone's team that everyone goes, well, you can, you can, you can beat Burnley. Come on, you can beat Burnley. So that, that, that'll be the defining factor. But I think it might be a bit of a stretch that even if they survive, that the mood will be completely lifted. I think Bruce will still be under pressure. You see, Burnley are the team that I always see in the fixture list and go, tough game always underestimated but that's the people different see, thing isn't people it see the word Burnley they think it's going to be easy and it's probably yeah. one of the toughest games of the season yeah that's true but I think well at the minute and Southampton showed that Burnley perhaps ha aren't quite as solid and Burnley like as as you expect them to be and so I think in the last few months Burnley have uh, surprised me a little bit with how easy they are to get at at times 
So that's why, as a Newcastle fan, if you were the the five or six remaining optimistic Newcastle fans out there, um, we'll be looking at the Burnley fixture and going, "Come on, we can do this. Three 0 win, then we'll then we'll be safe." But um, we'll we'll see if they flinch or not. And with all due respect, I think I'd rather have James Tarkovsky and Ben Mee at the heart of my defence than Davinson Shans- Sanchez and and Joe Roden at the weekend. It was ridiculous at times. Jose mm. Mourinho was asked um, why Spurs at the moment, unlike the previous teams he's managed, can't hold on to a lead. He said, it's the same coach, different players. Um, Alison, is he throwing his players under the bus that they can't park? <laughs> he's not going to like any player who can't park a bus, is he? Um, no, well, he's, he's, through, he's throwing them under um, several lorries, actually, this weekend, because he said that... And you don't, you know, that's not about misunderstanding Mourinho. He's basically saying, I'm an excellent coach. I haven't changed, but I'm in charge of a bunch of Muppets. I think that's a direct translation of that. And he's also pointed out that um, Alderweireld and Aurier missed their COVID tests, which meant that they couldn't be selected and implied that, you know, it was their fault, not a club issue. It was down to... The individuals just not being um, organised enough, and you know, it's like you can sort of visualise him sort of just throwing his hands in the air and saying, "You know, how how can I possibly cope when I've got this sort of attitude in the team?" But he's been there. He hasn't just turned up, has he? This isn't his third week in charge. So, at some point, and I don't know what the mathematical formula is, but I think we've reached it. At some point, a team is a reflection of their coach. And if they're not well organised and not turning up for their COVID tests on time and he can't rejig the team so that they are less porous and can hold on to a lead, then that is down to that is down to him. It is down to him. Any 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 manager who's been there that long, he's gone through the get to know them phase, he's gone through the Amazon documentary phase, he's got he's gone through all the phases of becoming a new manager of Spurs and this team should now be reflecting him. And they're not. And I think one of the most peculiar things about Spurs is that they, um, they, they, they ebb and flow so dramatically. You know, you can watch them for 15 minutes and think they're absolutely superb and aren't they blessed to have Harry Kane? And they, they look good and free-flowing and confident. And then another 15-minute spell... You think they're hesitant and they're not doing the right things and they're a bit of a, uh, that don't hold the line properly and they don't seem to know the system very well. And then they lose the midfield. And then another 50 minutes, oh my God, you know, the midfield's looking really strong and um, uh, robust. And I really like, I really, you know, I can see an element of what Mourinho's always liked players, you know, just strong, strong midfielders ahead of good passes of the ball, just people who can impose their personality. And then another 15 minute comes along and they're another team altogether. That is down to Jose Mourinho. It's not down to anyone else. His one saving grace could be that if they win the Carabao Cup final, if, it's a big if, then he can still be the man who wins trophies, can't he? That's for, he, he had a lot of faults at Manchester United, as I'm sure you remember well, Hugh, but he, he won trophies. He won trophies for Manchester United. And so he left saying... Well, you know, I got second behind a great city team and I won some trophies. And that was that was the argument for him coming to Tottenham after Pochettino. Oh, it was great, great football, but ultimately we bottled it, etc. That's a that's a lazy summary of Mauricio Pochettino's time. But you, you get my point. So 
if he wins a trophy and finishes seventh, I don't know whether some Tottenham fans might be pleased by that in a way. They've not won a trophy in a long time. The reality of enduring a season like this and then winning the Carabao Cup. I mean, I think you would sit back after that and go, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. We need something I th- more I think this. you're. I think you're probably right. I'm just p- merely presenting the what Jose Mourinho is now. Oh, yeah, he'll still make the most of that, no doubt. Within, yeah. within modern football and your points about positive coaches, if he's going to be anything, it's the grumpy guy who wins cup competitions. That can still be a USP, can't it? Isn't that the life cycle of a manager, though? You, you come in to the game, you're fresh, you're hungry, you've got new ideas, you're the man for winning league titles... Then your ideas are adopted by other teams, possibly, and and it affects your results. You become the man for for winning cups and trophies, and then you become the manager for sort of uh, the one-off game. You know, you you manage a smaller side, maybe you go off and do Valencia or Napoli or someone who's not expected to win the league, but you reach the Champions League and everyone says you've done a great job. And then eventually you fall down to being a a Europa League manager. And then who who knows, you go back to, to coach your country or your hometown club. I mean, that's just, that's sort of how it goes, isn't it? It, it could be, but I think Alison talked before about Sam Allardyce being positive and enjoying a 5-2 win. As Gregor says, there's the, there's the misery and the downtrodden and nature of Jose Mourinho's demeanour that doesn't ever seem to change, which is difficult, I think. Because even as you say, Hugh, you're quite right that, that your place within the game can change over time. But most managers are still enthusiastic about it. It's almost like someone's forcing him to do it. Oh, go on then. I'll take this massive paycheck. Fine. The biggest Fine. thing for me with Jose Mourinho is that it hasn't worked for him. Exactly what he's doing now hasn't worked for him. It hasn't worked at Manchester United. He did exactly the same thing, criticised the players, um, didn't change his, his style of football, um, didn't get the results he wanted. It was a club that people expected to do better. He got sacked. So, uh, you know, he can probably make more money being sacked than working if, if that's his sort of approach to the game. But the reality of the situation is, I've said this earlier in the year, I expected Tottenham to be the top four. Don't think that's going to happen. But now it's at the point, and they're not the only club in this category, where you just watch their games and say, they should be better. You, you look at the players they've got, you just go, they should be better. Tottenham Hotspur, even after the international break, maybe that played a part, but the reality is, they, they shouldn't be drawing two all with, with Newcastle. They certainly shouldn't be allowing them to have 22 shots. So that's down to the manager. That's down to the organisation. And, and it doesn't take for a team like Tottenham Hotspur, who's had, I think he's had three days with most of the players. Um, you know, it shouldn't take them a week to be able to defend OK against Newcastle United and certainly make Wellington look like, a four, oh, he is a £40 million player. But you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you, you, look, it's, it's now £10 million per Premier League goal, by the way. So Newcastle fans, you do have something to cheer you know, cheer for. It's becoming value for money with that guy. Um, look, I'll move on from Tottenham Hotspur. We're going to discuss European football next. Of course, nothing to worry about in that regard for Tottenham Hotspur. But we'll discuss the Champions League quarterfinals, some massive matches matches ahead. Remember though, if you love listening to the game podcast, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times right now as well. If you sign up today, you will get yourself one month free. It comes on all of your devices to boot. Just go online, search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, what a treat in prospect in the Champions League quarterfinals this week. Let's remind you of how that draw came out. It's Bayern Munich against Paris Saint-Germain. What a tie that is. But then three ties involving English clubs, of course, Real Madrid, 13-time winners taking on Liverpool, going for number seven, of course. Porto against Chelsea and Manchester City versus Borussia Dortmund. Alison, let's talk about Liverpool. They were back on song at the weekend. They beat Arsenal three goals to nil. The, the front three seem a little bit more harmonious. I know some people were surprised. Roberto Firmino started the game, but he sort of proved his worth. Diogo Jota coming off the bench, underlining his importance once again. And even Nathaniel Phillips and Erzan Kabak in centre-half positions, well, they seem to be settling in well together as a pairing. Uh, Tom Clark shakes his head. We'll come to his view in a second. Um, are, are you happy with how things are um, with, with Liverpool at the moment? Yeah, I, there's this thing, isn't there, that um, when it comes to European competition, you're supposed to put aside your, you know, your, who, the team you support and support the team in Europe. And so Arsenal were very kind, making sure that Liverpool go into their... Champions League quarterfinal feeling top of the world because Arsenal did everything they could to to pander to Liverpool as um, the reigning champions. They were fearful of them and that would have given Klopp's team an awful big boost. Just because I have a theory that it doesn't matter what's happening domestically, that in Europe, Liverpool are feared. They're a feared team. They have a, a reputation uh, people take them seriously, no matter what their domestic form might be. And when they've won, the, when they've won, you know, the Champions League in in recent years, it's 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 not always been because they were the best team in in England. There's something special about them. So Arsenal helped to foster that 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 sense that Liverpool are a um, very special team and that that Real Madrid should be scared of them. I I mean, you talk about the front three, Hugh. It was when Jota came on that they looked. To have that extra spark, that said, I mean, there's something about him. He's, it's incredible. He just looks like he's going to score. 
if the ball's within 10 feet of him, you think, oh, he's going to score. And he does. He's, he's just got that. It, there's absolute spark. It's incredible. Um, and he lifts. And, and, and obviously the players know that. And they they lift themselves too. Everything just, just took up another gear when he came on. I don't know why Tom was laughing when you mentioned the defence. Um, I think it's starting to click. Um, there's a moustache at the back now. We didn't have that before. I think that's really <laughs> important. You can't put a financial value on what having um, a moustache outside of the transfer window does actually for a team. <laughs> Normally, you think you know new signing, but no, there there it is. Um, so it's uh, they're looking they're looking good. This, um, they've been through a dreadful period, Liverpool, and you know I do I do genuinely think maybe it's slightly artificial. They know their season's going to be a successful failure based on what happens in Europe, but there seems to be a definite lift to the mood in the camp. And thank you very much, Arsenal, for supporting a fellow English club in Europe. The reasons for my laughter and shaking of the head and uh, Alison's shown her ability as a writer and novelist with that lovely romanticised poetic take on the game. Arsenal were awful. Arsenal were absolutely crap. That was one of the worst performances I've seen by any team in the Premier League all season. So I am, I've been lured in by an improved Liverpool before this season. I'm not going to let it happen again. I, they, were, they, were, they were all right. They were good. But I'm not going to start saying that, oh, the, the, the defence looks so much better. I mean, good I acknowledged, me. I acknowledged the role Arsenal played. And it's yes, but you did it in such a beautiful, poetic way that you kind of you made it seem like it was all part of a master plan. Liverpool were... Liverpool were playing an awful, awful team. They were, they were good. They were better. And I think Allison's Allison's moustache is a is a def, could be a defining factor. I remember Petr Cech talking about the ways in which he can put put off strikers. I think you might find find Karim Benzema running through on goal and suddenly go, "Wow, my God, that is an impressive moustache!" And then forgetting to score. So maybe that'll help. I'm just not I'm just not falling for the Liverpool comeback again yet. I think they'll I think it'll be a very very tough game. Um, Ian Hawkey's been on the podcast before and spoken about Real Madrid and said what a tough team they can be full of experience even without Sergio Ramos I think it'll be a very difficult game for Liverpool They are currently unbeaten in 11 games they've closed the gap at the top of La Liga to three points under their boss Zinedine Zidane there's no Sergio Ramos playing this week to give Mo Salah nightmares but it is a huge huge game a cracking tie as well and we talked a little bit about pressure earlier on Tom Liverpool might be free of, of some pressure because Alisson mentioned already, you know, it might be all about the Champions League for them this year. I think this is the tie that's the most pressured, actually, for both teams because for Real Madrid, this is the ultimate competition and it looks like they're not going to win La Liga. Um, and for Liverpool, this is this can be the way that they save their season. So this is arguably the tie with the most pressure. Um, I think perhaps Liverpool are under slightly less pressure maybe a smidge than Real Madrid but yeah, I hope it's I hope it's a entertaining and good game I have a slight fear that it might be a little dull in a strange way because I think both teams will feel that pressure and be a bit cautious I mean I'd be interested I don't know whether we talked about Diogo Jota's in, impact and almost cavalier playing of four forwards I don't know whether you can do that against Real Madrid in the Champions League um so it'll be interesting to see what side Liverpool select. But I think they're both both teams are under a lot of 
pressure because this this is the be all and end all for their season. I, I don't think you can start Diogo Jota to be perfectly honest. Um, it's a, look, it's two legs. The first one's away from home. Um, you've got to try and protect those two at the back as well. You know, it's a huge game for them playing at a level like that. They're going to be taking on Benzema, for example, who's been in good form of late. So, so I, I don't expect to see Jota starting, but of course he can have an impact off the bench. Also, I think Firmino will hold the ball up very well. So he's got to, for me, he has to start, although I know you're making the point about all four of them starting. Um, but but it, it, I, 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 I almost don't understand why you'd say Real Madrid are under more pressure because they're second in the league. I mean, they've got a chance of winning the title, not a bad one, to be perfectly honest. Um, whereas Liverpool, you know, this could be their way, really, of being in the Champions League next season if they win it. So, Alison, who's under more pressure? Oh, this, well, I think they're both under pressure, but it's different sort of pressure. I don't think we here in England understand quite what it's like to be Real Madrid and not winning, not, you know, not looking imperious. It's and especially with Barcelona having a bit of a crisis, are you, you know, the Real Madrid faithful will be thinking, what? <laughs> Why aren't you taking advantage of this? So I think, I think Real Madrid have started to get their act together. They'll be feeling really good about themselves. Um, I think it'll be a really tight two legs, really tight. But not, not, you know, I wouldn't, I think they're both under pressure, but it's really different sorts of pressure. Well, I don't think anyone, any club's been under the sort of pressure that Liverpool is currently under when a reigning champion has such odd things happen to it. And, you know, so it's been almost embarrassing at times. They both need it enormously. I think you're right, Hugh. I think Liverpool would probably think it might be, might just be their best route to securing Champions League football and that Real Madrid still can fight on two fronts. But I don't think there's a lot in it. But I think the pressure is so different, different type of pressure. Liverpool are not, don't have that sort of status, the Galactico status that um, Real Madrid have where they're supposed to, just supposed to be something every time. Liverpool are allowed to evolve, whereas Real Madrid is supposed to be at level one the whole time. I just couldn't believe that it was the first time since October that Liverpool have won three games in a row. That just seems remarkable for a team that are so kind of... Just wiping the floor with everyone for so long, um, and it has really been a bizarre season for them. And I agree with Tom. I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you know th- that performance was the best we've seen from them in a long while. But I wouldn't say that necessarily we're going to see them steamroll away to to place in the top four in the Champions League final. Now, I still, you know, there are still weaknesses there, particularly at centre half. Let's talk Chelsea next. I know we've already reflected on their game in the Premier League this weekend, but they cannot underestimate Porto after they dismissed Juventus in the last round of the Champions League. They're currently second in the Primera Liga in Portugal. And Gregor, so many people had Chelsea as their dark horses in this competition. Their first defeat in 15 came at the weekend, as we've discussed. But I wonder whether Chelsea are really as good as their recent record suggests. What do you think? Well, until until the weekend, the answer was yes. I mean, they looked so solid. I think Jorginho and, and uh, Kovacic on, on front of that back three looked so so solid. And there were like some slapstick moments from those two in the first half, particularly um, against West Brom. So, and then obviously there's been some reports of kind of little bits sort of pushing and shoving and whatnot and training and fallouts. So it will be interesting to see how they respond. And, and uh, you know, Tuchel doesn't strike you as someone who pulls any punches in these kind of uh, debriefings. So 
Um, it will be very interesting to see how they respond. But the, until this weekend, I would have said yes. I thought, you know, they, they look so solid, that base. And we've, we know how, how many kind of options they have going forward. It's just about picking the right players for the right opposition. Um, so I, th- I still think Chelsea will come through this, actually. I think they've been been impressive. You see, I'm one of those people who would have said that Chelsea aren't really as good as that recent record suggested, because even though they were hard to score against and clearly hard to beat, they've never really had that free-flowing element of attacking football. They've never scored that many goals either. You know, I think Thomas Tuchel just made them solid, a very solid team. And I think in the Champions League, if you are going to, you know, really challenge, you've got to be a little bit more than that. I think you're right. I think it's interesting to think about the Champions League because we were talking after they beat Atletico Madrid and that was the kind of the pinnacle of the Tuchel era as short as it's been so far but that was the that was when everyone started saying this is what he can do with this team and then you go and lose to West Brom and you look absolutely awful and I think I I, I said at the time it would be interesting if they got a team like Porto where they would be the favourites they're the they're the better team they've got the bigger squad they've got the more talented players and so that's why, reflecting back on the West Brom performance, uh, my suggestion that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have that kind of awful performance before this Porto game and have a few kind of rows in training and a bit of a refocus the squad, maybe. I, ex- I expect them to win and I think I expect them to put in a, two good performances over the two legs and I expect them to win um, because I just think this will be now, over the next few days, he will he will refocus, maybe change the team a little bit. Mason Mount will come back in and they'll win, I think. I haven't seen enough of Porto to really say they're going to be out of it. Um, but the game against Juventus, they certainly showed all the sort of spirit that you would need as an underdog in a, in a tie like this. Um, and I think maybe that will hold them in good stead against the Chelsea, where once again, they'll, they'll be unfancied. Although, of course, they'll have their striker suspended for the game uh, I'm interested to see if Thomas Tuchel changes anything as well after that West Brom defeat you know will Thiago Silva who looked rusty start again um, you know the Champions League isn't really the place for giving away errors and Andreas Christensen when he came on I mean it was uh, genuinely I, I was watching the highlights back a little bit earlier on it was like someone had won a competition I mean he was, just wasn't <laughs> marking yeah, but he just wasn't marking his man he was ball watching constantly I mean, it was like, are you going to check where the striker is at any point in time? You're sort of the last line of defence. Never happened once. Um, he, he basically wanted to show the striker his number on the back of his shirt. He was doing turns in the box. It was just ridiculous, frankly. It was just ridiculous. You know, a player like that is going to come under pressure in the Champions League. He'll probably have the game his life and look like Franz Beckenbauer now. <laughs> but but uh, even, you know, even Kurt Zuma in the game, they were just... There was one of the goals, um, the one that was passed into the bottom corner by Pereira. Chelsea were all over the place. There was actually at that point um, seven versus three in their own box. No one got near the ball. Everyone was running into each other. It was an absolute calamity. Um, And it was so against everything that we'd seen under Thomas Tuchel with Chelsea so far. In fact, he was making most of those defensive players look a lot better than they actually are. And I think, again, maybe it was the international break that made the difference in that game. But um, but certainly they're going to have to sort things out against Porto this weekend. It's gonna, this week it's going to be interesting anyway. Um, Manchester City. Let's talk them next. Um, their defence looks a lot better, although although the Champions League. You know, John Stones, the international break as well. You know, maybe it's all unraveling slightly. You never know. Um, Manchester City, Allison. I think England's best hope. 
and certainly the way they've played in the league this year. They take on Borussia Dortmund, but, but I wonder whether Dortmund might be in the mould of Leon last year in this quarterfinal banana peel type of game, the, the, the team that hurts Manchester City most. I don't think they're England's greatest hope. I've spent the last 30 years discounting City from winning anything in Europe and I've not been proved wrong yet. So I'm not going to start. <laughs> I'm not going to start. If there's, you know, there are truths in life and City not being able to win uh, the Champions League is one of them, I think. Anyway, um, I think, honestly, I think we're going to go down the tinkering path again. The mere fact that Pep Guardiola has alluded to it. So after the game against Leicester, he said, you know, when I rotate, I, I'm a genius if I win. And then and, and everyone says, what am I doing if I rotate and we don't win? It's, it's, it's getting into his head already, isn't it? What does he do? What does he do? What is his best team? And um, should he do something different? Because it's the serious stages of the Champions League. And everyone thinks they're favourite. And will it get to in the new? Will it happen? Will it happen? So I think they are probably the nerviest of the English clubs. I don't think, I mean, compared to what they are normally, in terms of increase in pressure internally, uh, that sort of sense of, come on, what, what, why don't we ever do it? And everyone thinks we ought to do it. And Dortmund are not in good form. But then Dortmund have, you know, they can throw everything at this because this is, this is their moment. This is all they've got. So, and they've got great, great players, Dortmund. So you do feel if they click and really want it badly, um, they could cause an upset. And I do feel clubs do not, are not, because of City's poor record in Europe, clubs, clubs abroad don't fear them the way that they're feared domestically. So often you watch City in the Premier League and you look at the opposition and you think, oh, why are you doing that? You know, you're not normally like that. You're being a bit cautious. Why, can't, why don't you push on? I've seen you, you know, in similar situations, be a bit more adventurous. You're clearly scared of what Manchester City can do to you on the break. Um, I don't think in Europe, for all the watching and analysis they'll do, there just isn't that sense of fear about what City can do to you. It's, you know, it just, it, just, it just isn't there. They don't have the aura they have. They have a huge aura in the Premier League. And they don't have it abroad. If I was Dortmund, playing for Dortmund, managing Dortmund, anything to do with Dortmund, I would be thinking, um, well, actually, why can't we Why can't we dominate the tactics? Why can't we be the team that, that is expected to win this game? So I, I don't think there are, are England's best chance of progress in the competition at all. There you go. I think, <laughs> I think the runaway like, Premier League leaders, yeah, England's th- worst chance in the yeah. Yeah, I think like the main difference in the Champions League for them this season is too is their is how much better their defence is. They're not relying on Otamendi at the back. You know they look solid, and you know or Fernandinho is not. They're not losing him from midfield because he has to play centre half. They look like a well-oiled machine just now. And I absolutely think they're the best chance. Sorry, Alison. I think, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, maybe something as well about there not being fans there. It's just like pure football now, isn't it? And when it's when it's that, then Manchester City are, are the best at the moment, undoubtedly. I'd make them favourites for the competition, in fact. If, Levin, if Lewandowski's not fit for, for Bayern Munich, I'd make them favourites for the competition just now. Well, I think those two opinions have allowed me to sit firmly on the fence. We've got. <laughs> I'm just going to say, who knows? I can't. I don't. Who knows? One one interesting point 
Alison made about the tinkering and Pep in these big games. And I think it's obviously been a problem for him in the past. And Hugh, you've brought it up on podcast previously. But I do wonder whether this current squad is more suited to tinkering than his previous squads. And the players, particularly in forward and midfield areas, are a bit more adaptable. We saw if because if you like, if you reflect back on that uh, Chelsea performance, the win against Chelsea, which was the start of you, if you like, of everyone realizing, wow, this City team are, are really are really something this season. That was some enforced tinkering, wasn't it? With no one really playing as striker, De Bruyne playing as a false nine. So I wonder whether he's fine tuned his tinkering to the point where now he can he can make some changes and it won't be detrimental. So I think Alison, you could be right that we could see something a bit different from Pep, but whether it might be, as he said in his press conference, the genius moment rather than, as Hugh, you've been worried about a moment where it all falls apart once again. If I see three at the back when that Manchester City team sheet comes out, I'm going to be absolutely <laughs> livid. And that's as a Manchester United <laughs> fan. He overthinks it too much. I mean, he, uh, for me, I agree with Gregor. I would, I'd say Bayern Munich are the favourites. Without Lewandowski, Manchester City are the favourites. I think they are England's best chance. The squad's irresistible at the moment. Kevin De Bruyne just about coming back to, towards his full fitness as well. And, and, Definitely getting his rhythm back in terms of being in that starting eleven makes a huge difference. A player of that quality needs to win the Champions League at some point, I think. He's the only player too that really you would think if you know if they lost him, it would be an enormous dent. You could say the same about, about Diaz, but Stone's reemergence—they're okay there. You look at their bench: at Stone, Silva, Cancelo, Gundogan. Sterling was on the bench Foden was on the bench that's a ridiculous squad so there's not really an area and as Tom says you know it it was in the past Aguero if he drops out if he's injured then who's the backup they've they've found a solution to that this season so you know if De Bruyne is fit the rest of the the rest of the squad is almost interchangeable Does anyone think that Erling Haaland is going to be the difference in this tie? Do you think Manchester City's defence are about to face something that they they haven't seen before. It's going to be interesting because this will probably be the first time a lot of English football fans will have watched him for a, a full a full 90 minutes. He's he's the ultimate modern footballer, the, the highlights, reels, the social media clips, everyone who's never even watched him for more than 10 minutes. And this is not a, not a criticism of these views because the goals are so spectacular that you they allow you to say, wow, this guy is clearly an amazing player. But this is our chance to see his all-round game and see whether he he does work hard off the ball and all these things that we talk about in modern football. So I'm f- I'm fascinated to see that and how he performs in a big game against a very good defence. Um, because he's clearly a player who likes the big occasion. I think we talked, Gregor talked about it with the last, last round when they beat Sevilla with the kind of joking and winding up the opposition and things. So I'm sure he will be very, very much up for it and trying to cause an upset. But it will be interesting to see alongside the spectacular goals what else, you know what else are his real, real strong points and things. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated. I don't know whether he'll do it. The question is: Is he are City's defenders facing something different? And the, the answer is yes. <laughs> He's he is definitely something different. Um, but look, City have been brilliant defensively, so whether he can have quite the same impact be fascinating to see. Slightly disappointed too. Some reports about Jaden Sancho perhaps being injured, missing the game. So you know. It's, Always good to see him go back and kind of 
playing against these former teams, showing them what, what they're missing, maybe. Did anyone believe Pep Guardiola when he said Manchester City don't have the money to buy a striker this summer, even though they've already announced that Sergio Aguero is going to be leaving? No, God, don't you know them? I know them. I know people. I know people who have the biggest houses and second homes and go skiing every year. But they 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 really, really want to portray themselves as being like you and me. So they'll say, Oh, you know, I don't I don't I don't think I can go for a drink. I'm sort of try, trying to save a bit of money this month. Well, they stood in front of their £8.5 million mansion. <laughs> there are people like that, people like that who don't, who don't revel in their, they don't want to revel publicly in their wealth and their privilege. They want to feel like they're just, just normal. They're just normal people who have to worry about the cost of a pint of milk. It's absolute rubbish, but it's, it's part of a personality trait that you want to be not seen as too elite and in operating in a rarefied atmosphere because it doesn't reflect well on his ability, does it? If everyone, if, if in his, his legacy is that he only managed teams with lots of dosh and could buy who he wanted when he wanted, that's, I don't think he wants that legacy. So that's why he says things like that. And he, he said that after watching his start in 11 that cost, I think, a Johnny, Johnny Northcroft's report, £530 million or something like that. So That is the ski lodge in the it's background. It's laughable, laughable it. stuff. The thing is, if Erling Haaland's going to be £150 million quid, then it would still be way above what Manchester City have said spent in the past. And a little dig from Pep Guardiola ahead of this game as well. He says, Borussia Dortmund have done so well to bring in loads of these young players, but they do pay a fair whack in agent fees. And he made that point Um to bring in all of these great young talents and if news reports are to be believed it's going to be a hell of an agent fee to both uh, Mino Raiola and Alfinger Haaland Haaland's dad who represents him as well if you're going to get his signature this summer 20 million euros each is in one report this summer but well worth it for Dortmund if they're turning around in one year you know a player that they bought what did they buy him for 20 million mm-hmm. not I much think. more than and, that yeah. yeah you know and 12 months later they've got the biggest kind of wrestling match for a player that you can remember in kind of the last decade. Uh, yeah, I think paying, it's not, you know, no one likes to see agents taking whopping fees like that, but that one was worth it. I like the idea of Pep being so affronted by this podcast and Alison's suggestions that they're not good enough to win Europe and that he's got so much money that instead of Haaland, he goes out and buys Dominic Calvert-Lewin or something. The two, to be honest, would probably cost upwards of 70 million anyway. But just to make the point, I don't need Haaland and I can't afford him. So instead, I'm going to scrape the pennies together instead. I think it was silly. I'm getting tired of Pep Guardiola saying stuff like this, to be perfectly honest. Although, after the weekend, and I, you know, there was a discussion on Match of the Day about um, Harry Kane's future and some people saying that Manchester City could be going in for Kane. Tom Clark, if they're going to spend yeah. a little bit less, possibly 30 million quid less, 120 million quid on someone like Harry Kane, would they do that? There again, it's proof they listen to the game podcast because we discussed this a few a few weeks and months ago. And I said, Pep, he's only got a couple of years left at City. Just pay the money for Harry Kane, win the lot and leave. Happy days. Take that, Alison Rudd. Told you I could win it in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. It was the Copa del Rey final this weekend. It was a Basque derby. Uh, Real Sociedad beating Athletic Bilbao and then Imanol Aguasil, the manager of Sociedad, came into his press conference post-match. 
He put on a club shirt, he held a club scarf aloft and he began to chant as if he was on the terraces. It was a sight to behold, apparently in appreciation for all of those who had watched the game. He used to play for the club for eight years as well. And it got us thinking about the most passionate press conferences we can remember. It was very impassioned. You should see it, by the way. Check it out on YouTube or wherever. Um, Tom Clark, I'm going to start with you. Do, you. do you remember the most passionate press conferences? Mine that spring to mind aren't necessarily passionate in the same way, definitely not in the most positive way. I mean, there's a Roy Hodgson one of him being interviewed after a match, I think as West Brom manager, and the outtake of the exchange where he gets asked a question that he doesn't like, and then, you know, starts starts swearing and gets very, very upset. And very unlike Roy Hodgson, the character that we know, and he seems very mild-mannered and intelligent man, gets very, very offended by being asked a question about, oh, what decision were you unhappy with? What do you mean? You know what decision? What stupid, stupid bloody question? Anyway, let's start again. And then gets asked the question, vaguely similar question. You just asked me that, but we've, we've started again. And it's very, it's very, very <laughs> uncomfortable, but it's excellent to watch. And the other one that sprung to mind was, that it was Harry Redknapp, which is not a press conference again, but I'm, so I'm cheating a little bit. But the great interview of where he's being interviewed at the training ground. I'm not sure whether it's West Ham or Portsmouth, but this, <laughs> this is it's just absolutely superb. And there's some players kicking a ball in the background. And one of them flies past and nearly hits him, spins around. What the f- what the f are you doing? One and and then the reporter tries to maintain professionalism and say, "Okay, plumbing act, that was a bit close, Harry." Anyway, I'll ask you a question. And he asks him another question. You can see Redknapp in his eyes is still yeah. furious, and he's like, "I'm not <laughs> finished." Turns around and goes, "No wonder he's in the effing reserves." It's oh, so good, <laughs> so good. So yeah, I think good. one of the players says, what are, you, what are you playing at? And someone says, yeah. just shooting, Gaffer. And he says, shooting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the goal's miles You hit me away. over here. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. But I would just like to wait one press conference-wise, and this, these segments of the show tend to turn into Tom's tips for what to watch during lockdown. But I, as I did have some positive responses to my suggestions about Fernando Redondo uh, highlights reels, if you have some time to kill whilst we're uh, awaiting life returning to normal. Can I, I recommend the Mick McCarthy five-year montage highlights reel on YouTube from his time at Wolves? It's basically just the outtakes in between questions, and it is absolutely superb. It's just him sitting there kind of, oh, fig off, do me a cheesy quaver. <laughs> anyway, I will vanish in my shed at 6 a.m. And he's a great still. Whoever's edited it has done it brilliantly as well because he intersplices it with bits of Mick stirring his coffee, it's it's fantastic. It's 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 a joyous joyous five minutes in a very different way to the Sociedad manager. So there you are. There's Tom, there's Tom's tip. He's not changed at all either. I did one a Mick McCarthy press conference when he came back to Cardiff, and he's just the same like <laughs> the gruff old Yorkshireman. Like I, I love him though. <laughs> Great. It's, it, it's brilliant, <laughs> but brilliant value. That's my advice on how to spend your five minutes at some point this week. Alison. Well, I loved about that Sociedad press conference was that it was so stage managed and that you had the press officer handing him his shirt and then he put his shirt on and then the press officer handed him his scarf. So he put his scarf on. And I I just felt it might have been a bit better if he'd had a little carrier bag on the desk and done it all (laughs) by himself. But it just made me think, you know, sometimes managers come out and they know what they're going to do and it's prepared so it doesn't matter almost doesn't matter what has happened in the game they will know what they want to say and you know Rafa's piece of paper um and facts is the most famous but a less famous one was 
involving me. So I'm going to talk about <laughs> the one involving me, which was in um, May 2007. Stevie Highway, who had huge success with Liverpool Academy, uh, decided to leave the club and no one knew why. And I went and spent the day with him um, at the academy and I wasn't really expecting him to tell me why he was leaving. You know, he said he was leaving because Rafa Benitez, although he was a good manager, um, didn't understand youth football and he just couldn't stay any longer. And Steve Highway's a huge hero of mine. So I said, are you sure you want to say that? And he said, yeah, you know, Rafa doesn't understand youth football. Are you, are you sure you want to say that? Yeah, no, he doesn't understand youth football. So I wrote a huge piece saying um, Steve Highway, Liverpool legend, is leaving Liverpool because Rafa Benitez doesn't understand youth football. Anyway, the game before, one of the games before the Champions League final, um, Rafa's Liverpool are at Fulham. I'm covering the game. Liverpool lose 1-0. Press conference afterwards. I'm sort of near the back of the room. Um, people are asking normal questions like, oh, Rafa, you know, were you, were you resting people for the Champions League? Rafa just says, apparently, I know nothing about youth football. And everyone in the room, everyone in the room is looking at each other, going, what's going on? And then someone asks another question about the match. And he goes, apparently, I know nothing about youth football. And so I look at the press officer and give him that sort of wide-eyed what's going on look and he shrugs at me like I, I don't know what's going on so I just I just sort of slowly sink into my chair <laughs> not everybody in the room had read the uh, had read the times that day bizarrely and they didn't know what the hell was going on but he, he answered every question almost with oh, apparently I know nothing about you football but I, it was just clearly it got got to him and he wanted to say it in the press conference and I think we forget sometimes that 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 is a moment of power, isn't it, for any manager? If And I'm surprised more of them don't do something like that. They put on the shirt and wave a flag or bring out sandwiches or show some photographs of their grandchildren. I mean, it's it's a moment of power. So um, uh, all, you know, all credit to him for doing something different anyway. Gregor, come on, someone must have blasted you in a post-match press conference. Blasted me? Uh, <laughs> no, the first one that came to my mind was... was uh, with Jim McClellan, it was much like Roy Hodgson's and a reporter had asked a question that I think they probably promised not to. And Jim McLean, uh, former Dundee United chairman, this is quite famous, he got extremely angry and, and sweary and then it, in fact boiled over to a physical assault. So that was not, that's not quite, uh, going a bit further than passion. He went a bit too far, but that's that's <laughs> that has gone down in legend in Scotland that Jim McLean was a, a man you did not mess with. Uh, but more recently, Charlie Austin in 2018, I don't know if you remember after, I think he'd had a goal ruled out against Watford. I think he drew one all. Oh yeah, and, oh yeah. And he, he just, the thing that was hilarious about it was his kind of voice went up in, in his eyes. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. It's like, <laughs> it was like, for, like, for like a minute and a half, no matter what the, the, the interviewer was asking him, he's going, yeah, but we should have won the game. We should have won the game. <laughs> this little high-pitched voice. And then I think about exactly one and a half minutes in, he sort of realised that he was squealing and shouting and then sort of dipped back into professional mode going, yeah, it's disappointing. But um, so... Charlie Austin. He was up to about two weeks' wages and three games span yeah, yeah. in terms of what he'd already said. He had said. this sort of disconcerting bloodshot eye at the same time as well while he was sort of staring at the interview. <laughs> so, yeah, Charlie Austin. 
my favourite's not even in English. Giovanni Trapattoni at Bayern Munich. If you've never seen it, they've lost 1-0 to Schalke. They are second in the league. A couple of players have come out in the media. Mario Basler and Mehmet Scholl, critical that they weren't in the starting 11. Thomas Strunz objected to being substituted as well. And a minute into his press conference, Giovanni Trapattoni, it just gets, it builds and builds and builds. And he suddenly says, in this game, two or three or four players were weak like an empty bottle. And my fa- and he slams the desk with his hand as well. And I absolutely love this because it's not quite what Jose Mourinho's done at the moment, but it's pretty much what every single manager wants to do as well. He says Thomas Strunt, but he elongates it. So it sounds like he's basically insulting him in Italian with his own name. Like So he pronounces it as an Intal- Italian insult, but actually he just says, oh no, I just, I was angry. Just said his name like that. But basically, he says he's been here for two years. He's played 10 games. He's always injured. What right does he have to say anything, basically, about one of his own players? And I absolutely love that, that a manager would just say, look, you're never, you're never even fit, frankly. You haven't got a right to say anything <laughs> in front of all the media. And then basically storms out after two minutes. But if you've never seen that, honestly, you've got to. He is absolutely livid. I mean, there's quite a few. Let's be honest. We don't, we don't get to see that much passion. We have to mention Joe Kinnear as well, surely. So some of his... And Joe Kinnear was a manager I had at Forest. He's just come to mind, actually, yeah. He called the Forest fans morons once after. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he got sacked very soon afterwards. Uh, but he was something else, Joe Kinnear. And then, remember, do you remember he called Charles, Charles Inzogbia insomnia? Oh, and, yeah. and, so, and he went in the huff. But he used to call me George. So, like, and he called, <laughs> he called players all sorts of names. He just, he just, that was, so I knew that wasn't, it wasn't like intentional. So, Joe, yeah. And obviously, Joe Kinnear had that expletive laden rant as well at all the local journalists one time. So, Joe Kinnear's right up there. Yeah. And George is your new nickname on the game podcast. Thanks for revealing <laughs> nice that small tidbit. <laughs> I'll be using that one. Love these little pieces of information. Uh, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, George Robertson, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. And to all of you for listening as well. We'll be back on Thursday. Thursday. We'll be looking back at some fantastic games in the Champions League, I am sure. But remember, if you want more of our great journalism from the Times and the Sunday Times, you can subscribe across all of your devices. If you sign up today, you'll get one month free. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We will see you on Thursday. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.